If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10 is where we are headed today as we continue through the book of Daniel this fall. And as you are turning there, uh, have any of you seen, you remember the movie Up? Pixar movie Up? Yeah? Um, you know, the, the house with all the colorful balloons coming out of the top of it, floating in the sky. Uh, great stuff. I remember going to see that movie the summer that it came out. Um, and, and it was, you know, a fun Pixar movie. However, this movie has come to be known for its utterly heart-wrenching opening sequence. You guys remember that? Right? Um, you know, it, it, it opens up uh, with this boy and this girl named um, Ellie and, and Carl. And without any words, there's this montage of the two of them meeting each other, becoming friends, sharing adventures, growing up, falling in love, getting married. Uh, they fix up the house uh, and they try to start a family but then learn that they're unable to have children. And so they walk through that grief and then slowly continue sharing their life and their adventures together as they grow old. Until Ellie becomes sick and is in the hospital. And the sequence ends with Carl by himself, after the funeral, holding a single balloon, and then walking by himself, alone, back into the house that had been theirs. All of this with music in the background, uh, and a montage that's only about three or four minutes long. But when the movie was first released, there was not a dry eye in the theater, right? I mean, people came to see a fun, animated Pixar movie, but the first 10 minutes were just absolutely wrecked, right? Sometimes an introduction is far more than an introduction, right? I mean, the intro to that movie is a movie in and of itself. That was certainly the case with Up. And that's also the case with Daniel chapter 10. Throughout the second half of Daniel, we have seen a number of these different visions that Daniel uh, came about. There is chapter 7, uh, perhaps the most epic. There are these mutant monsters, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man. Then chapter 8 showed us these fighting livestock as a ram and a goat face off with their many, many horns. And then chapter 9 showed us Daniel in prayer and then receiving a word about these 77s that were decreed for God's people in the days to come. Each one of these visions had come to Daniel in the midst of exile, and each one contained a bit of a mixed message that even more troubling times were ahead, but they will eventually come to an end. Well, Daniel chapters 10 
through 12, all the way through the end of the book, make up one final long vision for Daniel. Uh, And it comes to him with more vivid detail and a more epic conclusion than many of the others. And chapter 10 functions as an introduction to this long final vision in 10, 11, and 12. And though this chapter is only an introduction to the vision, it does take up a whole chapter of its own, and it is worth pondering and reflecting on in its own right. So, let's read Daniel chapter 10. It's a little bit shorter, so I'll read it for us this week. Daniel 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man, dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I... Daniel was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with 
anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. You who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. And so he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for these stories which show us your heart for us. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Daniel chapter 10. This chapter is an introduction to Daniel's final vision in the book. And he's praying and fasting when a messenger appears to give him an explanation, which we'll hear in chapter 11. But as the messenger appears and introduces himself, uh, we notice there's, there's two primary interactions that we hear about uh, throughout this. One of them is close-up and personal, and the other one is, is cosmic and supernatural. The chapter tells us about the close-up personal encounter between Daniel and this messenger. But as he appears to Daniel... The messenger also shares a story about his cosmic supernatural encounter with the prince of Persia and the chief prince Michael and an impending meeting with the prince of Greece. What are we to make of all of this? Well, let's start with that close-up encounter and work our way out to that cosmic one. All right. The chapter begins in verse 1 with Daniel receiving a revelation concerning a great war, or as some translations read more broadly, a great conflict. And immediately the chapter becomes very instructive for us. How do you respond in the midst of conflict? I mean, how does our culture tend to respond in the midst of conflict. In our information age, I'm constantly amazed at how quickly so many people become absolute experts in so many things. Do you know what I mean? 
Right? I mean, a few years ago, whenever COVID first entered the scene, within weeks, it seemed like everyone was suddenly a specialist in viral transmission with expert knowledge and how things spread and what, you know, you should do or didn't need to do, right? Everyone knew exactly what to do. Or more recently, in the wake of world wars, it seems like once more everyone has suddenly become a specialist in global politics and international policy with expert knowledge on the histories of Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, uh, as, as well as, uh, you know, the Middle East and, and Israel and, and Gaza. And, and everyone's just experts with precise instructions on what should happen and shouldn't happen and how it all needs to, to sort out, right? Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, people are somehow experts in all of this. In moments of conflict, we live in a culture where people puff themselves up with knowledge and pronounce their expert opinions upon everyone else. Now, in reality, this expert education probably came from a two-and-a-half-minute news segment or an 800-word article or a tweet or a meme. But we know, right? We puff ourselves up over others. That's the culture we live in. And so Daniel receives this revelation of a time of great conflict, And yet, his response comes in verses 2 and 3. He says, at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food. No meat or wine touched my lips. I used no lotions at all until three weeks were over. Rather than publicly puffing himself up, Daniel privately humbles himself in prayer. What a different kind of response. Right? We live in a culture where people respond to conflict with fight or flight as we argue or ignore various pressing concerns. But instead of fighting or fleeing, Daniel fasts and praise. Our fights and and flights are fear-based ways of coping that, to be honest, really keep us from actually experiencing reality. But Daniel receives this revelation of great conflict, and he allows himself to be deeply affected. He does not fight. He does not flee. He doesn't argue about it or ignore it. He allows himself to be moved as he mourns and he fasts from choice food and luxury. You know, we tend to think of fasting as kind of a strange, archaic, uncomfortable spiritual practice that people used to do. But actually, fasting is something that comes very naturally to people 
if we let it. In the wake of truly deep grief, it is natural to lose your appetite. The body loses its interest in food for a time because the soul is overwhelmed and concerned by other matters. Fasting is our body's natural response to the soul's longing. Fasting is a natural response to the soul's overwhelming desire for things to be set right. We naturally lose our appetite in the wake of these things. I wonder if we tend to struggle with fasting because we struggle with actually tuning our hearts and our souls to God's heart for the world. If we truly allowed ourselves to grieve deeply, I think we would naturally find ourselves being a people who fast and pray, just like Daniel. When Daniel sees this great conflict, he doesn't distance himself from it with information or ignorance. Rather, he allows himself to enter the fullness of it with fasting and with mourning. Instead of puffing himself up, he humbles himself in prayer. And look at the response that he receives. After 21 days, he's visited by a messenger. Verses 5 and 6, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. What a sight! What a vision. And the identity of this messenger is mysterious. The text does not tell us who it is. Some think it might be Gabriel again, who visited Daniel back in chapters 8 and 9. There are others who are struck by the similarities in the description of this figure and the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. There's a lot of similarities. But whatever the case, whether this is an angelic messenger from God or some pre-incarnate appearance of God himself, it's clear that this messenger comes to communicate the word of God in response to Daniel's prayers. In verse 12, he says exactly that. Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. All of these days of your fasting and praying, I heard you, and I'm here now. This interaction between Daniel and this messenger contains several very tender moments made even more tender by Daniel's vulnerability, right? Before the arrival, Daniel had already been mourning and fasting for three weeks. That's a vulnerable state to be in. 
And then, during the encounter, Daniel continues to describe his sense of vulnerability. Verse 8, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Verse 9, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Verse 10, trembling on my hands and knees. Verse 11, I stood up, trembling. Verse 15, I bowed with my face to the ground and I was speechless. Verse 16, I was overcome with anguish. I feel very weak. Verse 17, my strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. I mean, can you hear the vulnerability in all of this? Again and again, Daniel refuses to puff himself up or ignore his experience. Rather, he repeatedly acknowledges his own weakness and vulnerability. And when the messenger sees this, he offers Daniel comfort and strength. And he does so both with encouraging words and tender touch. When Daniel falls his, uh, face down to the ground, verse 10 says, A hand touched me. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, stand up. Another way of translating these words would be to say, Daniel, you are greatly beloved. You are greatly beloved. Stand up. Right? The messenger touches him and speaks of his identity as one who is deeply loved. Again, when Daniel finds himself speechless in verse 16, the messenger reaches out and touches his lips so he can speak. And when he does speak, he expresses his anguish and his weakness. So a third time, in verse 18, it says, Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. And then in verse 19, the messenger speaks once more, Do not be afraid. You who are highly esteemed, who are greatly beloved, Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. Can you sense the tenderness, the comfort, and the encouragement within these exchanges? Do you see that? Daniel is mourning and he's fasting. He's weak and he's vulnerable. And this messenger from God comes to offer both physical and verbal reassurance. Daniel sees himself as weak and tired, but God sees him as one who is deeply loved. This whole interaction reminds me of Jesus' words. In Matthew 23, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. I mean, throughout the book of Daniel, we have seen proud kings who had exalted themselves being dramatically humbled. 
by being cast out into the wilderness with mysterious appearances of hands writing on the wall, right? They exalted themselves and they were humbled. But here, in chapter 10, we see Daniel who has humbled himself in fasting and prayer, being exalted as this messenger literally extends his hand to Daniel and lifts him up to his feet. Now, I don't know whether this figure is meant to be an angelic messenger or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, but what I do know is that this is exactly what Jesus does throughout his ministry. Jesus often extended his hands to touch those who were weak and vulnerable, offering them healing and strength. This is who Jesus is. This is who God is. I wonder, when we are at our weakest and most vulnerable, when we're right there in the midst of grief, shame, fear, doubt, can we sense God's tender touch? Can we hear his voice calling to us? Do not be afraid, you who are greatly beloved. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. This is who God is. This is how God reaches for us and speaks to us. We do not need to puff ourselves up, for when we are weak, He gives us strength. It's as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is in weakness that God reaches out to offer comfort and strength. It's what we see here in Daniel chapter 10, a personal close-up encounter of God's grace imparting strength and weakness, God's mercy exalting the humble. But then in the midst of all of this personal tender encounter, we also receive word of an apparently cosmic, supernatural struggle, right? I mean, it is strange right in the middle of this passage. It causes us to scratch our heads in a bit of confusion. But it's not something that we should skip over because it offers us a glimpse of insight into the spiritual realm, what I'm referring to is all of the strange talk of princes that this messenger comes with. Uh, did you catch all of that in the passage? 
right? Remember, Daniel had been fasting and praying for 21 days. And when the messenger arrives, he says to Daniel in verse 12, since the very first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Then he continues in verse 13, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Then at the end of the chapter, we hear a little bit more of this talk of princes. Uh, At the very end, soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come, right? What's going on with all of this? Well, Bible scholars are pretty unanimous, which is rare, very rare, Uh, pretty unanimous that these princes are not earthly rulers, but rather references to a variety of supernatural beings that we tend to call angels and demons. This means that verse 13 might be paraphrased, Daniel, I am so sorry for the delay. I heard you the moment you started praying, but I got caught up finding a demon for a few weeks until Michael, the archangel, came to help. We're glimpsing some kind of supernatural struggle here. Some glimpse of spiritual warfare. Now, why are they called the Prince of Persia or the Prince of Greece? Well, there is a very deep rabbit hole that we could go down, and I will not keep you here that long this morning. Uh, We we could explore some of it next Sunday during our conversation hour, if you're interested. But I'll simply summarize it this way. In the ancient world, people believed that the world was not merely made up of God and humans, but there was a whole spiritual realm filled with all manner of spiritual beings. That's why throughout the Old Testament and several times throughout the book of Daniel, God is referred to as the Most High, as the King of Heaven, as the God of Gods, right? Because there are other spiritual beings under this Most High God. There are other God-like beings under this God of Gods. That's how it was understood. And we see glimpses of these spiritual beings in the spiritual realm under God in several places throughout the Bible. But one of the ideas in the ancient world is that many of these beings were placed in charge of various different kingdoms on earth. So each earthly kingdom would have its own angelic overseer, so to speak. And what we find here in Daniel 10 is the angelic overseer of Persia and of Greece, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. And what we discover is that not all of these supernatural beings follow and support the ways of God. 
Some of them are opposed to God and opposed to the kingdom of God. Some of them resist God and God's messengers. And that's what this messenger describes. The prince of Persia resisted him when he was coming to visit Daniel. The prince of Greece is coming later. And then there's Michael, right? A chief prince who comes to his aid. And we find other references to this Michael archangel engaging in spiritual warfare again in the New Testament. We read about him in Jude where he's disputing with the devil. We read about him in Revelation where he's battling a great dragon, right? There's some some wild stuff in there. All of this is quite perplexing and incredibly strange to our modern Western ideas about the world and how things are. What are we to make of all of these supernatural beings and and so on, these angels and demons and, and stuff? Well, C.S. Lewis offered a great bit of wisdom when he wrote this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we tend to fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You see, it's wrong to deny the supernatural realm and supernatural beings that exist there. It is also foolish to become obsessed with it. Right? So, what does knowing about it do? How does this shape us and form us in the meantime? Well, I want to offer three things that we can do with this as we consider these supernatural beings, these princes, I believe that it invites us to believe bigger, to love truer, and to pray deeper. It invites us to believe bigger, love truer, and pray deeper. Tell me, I'll tell you a little bit about what I mean for each of these. This invites us to believe bigger. It invites us to see that the gospel is not only about individual people and their sins. It's not even only about communities of people and their sins, which Daniel prayed about back in chapter 9. The gospel is about heaven and earth. It's about all things. Jesus did not only die to forgive our sins, although he did, but he also died to defeat evil spiritual powers. Paul uses this language often when describing the gospel, describing what Jesus did. Daniel talks about these various princes. Paul talks about principalities and powers. 
right? Whenever Paul describes us in sin, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, right? This mysterious spiritual being that is not merely of Persia or Greece, but of the air, right? Infecting all of us leading all of us astray and away from the way of God. That's what sin looks like in the spiritual realm. But the cross looks like this. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul describes it this way, using similar language. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of acquirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The cross is a moment where Jesus disarms these evil spiritual powers so they no longer have power over us in this world. After the cross, Paul describes resurrection like this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. The resurrection is Jesus' triumph over all things. It's Jesus' triumph over all principalities and powers, all the supernatural beings that would oppose God. The gospel is bigger than just us and our sin. It is that, but it's so much more than that. God wants to restore all of heaven and earth. He wants his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. He wants to make all things right again. And that's beyond just us. There is a spiritual realm of, in this as well. And so this invites us to believe bigger. It also invites us to love truer. Knowing about these powers and principalities that we're talking about allows us to live more deeply into Jesus' command to love our enemies, right? Paul uses this language again later on in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, right? It's not just the conflicts that we see going on on earth so that we do not demonize one another. There is a deeper conflict going on of actual demons. We can love one another and oppose the darkness that we cannot see. 
There is another realm in this. Knowing these things allows us to love truer. It allows us to see people not merely as enemies doing wrong to us, but as those who also are held captive to sin and to the enemies of God. There's one more way that I think this shapes us and invites us to believe bigger, invites us to love truer, but it also invites us to pray deeper. We can pray more deeply knowing that our prayers actually do echo through the spiritual realm. Our prayers actually do something. We can pray more deeply just like Daniel. Right? If Daniel had not been praying and fasting for these 21 days, then that conflict between the messenger and the prince of Persia and Michael would not have happened. Right? Something would have gone differently in the heavenly realm if that messenger had not been coming to respond to Daniel's prayer. When we pray, something happens that cannot be fully described or understood. But something really happens when we pray. And so we can pray more deeply, not understanding all things, but trusting that God really does hear us and in some way is moving things and responding to things. And if we don't see it on earth yet, we can trust that there is a response in heaven. There's a lot of mystery in all of this. And again, like C.S. Lewis said, it would be unhealthy to you know, leave here and, and become demon experts, right? Hey, you said to pray deeper, so let's go exercise a bunch of demons. That's not what the sermon is. It's an invitation to trust that God's kingdom truly is an everlasting kingdom. And it will outlast not only the kingdoms of this earth, but also any kind of spiritual kingdoms that try to oppose him. The kingdom of God is forever. That is the good news. That is our hope. So may we trust in him. May we believe in him. May we pray in him. Amen.